welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 18, Double Majority. In the autumn of 1844, Charles Metcalfe, Governor General of British North America, and a man who was hanging on to life against a steadily worsening cancerous tumor that was overtaking his face, found himself at the center of the political storm. He had cobbled together a coalition of politicians, including William Henry Draper and the two Dennis Benjamins, Messrs. Vijay and Papineau, the latter, of course, the brother of Louis-Joseph, no less. But the coalition was untested, and now they were about to ask Canadian electors for their support in forming a government. It was not going to be easy. United against the governor's group was a reform party led by Louis Lafontaine and Robert Baldwin, a coalition of reformers who insisted, first and foremost, that government in the Canada should be a responsible government, a government of a single party united across both French and English, and a party which would fully control the levers of power, limiting quite considerably the powers of the governor himself. It was a government led by a united reform party, they argued, which could protect the interests of French Canadians, vital, of course, to La Fontaine supporters, and which would be democratic in a truly loyal and British fashion. The question was, what would Canadians decide? Nineteenth-century political insults are truly delicious, and the reformers had plenty of insults to throw at Governor Charles Metcalfe. He was an arch-fiend, a Satan, Charles the Simple, a gambler and a horse racer, and, best of all, a frequenter and supporter of the theatre. Can you imagine? They also called him Old Square Toes, and if any of you out there know the reason for this insult, I'd love to hear from you. Canadians called a bunch of different figures Square Toes, and I'm intrigued as to why and haven't been able to, at least not yet, find the right answer. So send me your thoughts. But this last one, Square Toes, his supporters cheerfully embraced, writing poems about their support for Old Square Toes. For despite the insults, Metcalf was at the center of the Loyalist campaign. His supporters ran on a platform of loyalty and the Constitution, and the stoic Metcalf, enduring all the insults, doing his duty despite personal pain and sacrifice, seemed the perfect symbol. They set him against the overly ambitious and partisan and disruptive Baldwin and Lafontaine. Of course, it must be said that this worked a heck of a lot better in Upper Canada than it did in Lower Canada. In Lower Canada, Metcalfe's chief allies, Vijay and Papineau, found themselves up against tough opponents. Lafontaine had attracted the best candidates. Wolfred Nelson, he who had led the Patriot to victory at Saint-Denis, was back in the colony and had agreed to run as a candidate against none other than Vijay himself. And what's more, Nelson won. After this early failure, Vijay tried another riding, and he lost there as well. Remember, at this time, elections would last several weeks, with the polls closing in different ridings at different times. So, if you lost in one riding, there was nothing stopping you from popping over somewhere else and trying again. In Montreal, the supporters of the ministry wanted revenge against their loss in last year's by-election, when Hinks had organized a coalition of Irish and French canalers to rough up public meetings and enforce reforms control of the streets. 
So this time the Loyalists organized, of course, their own paramilitary gang and took back the streets. But this was a blip. In Lower Canada, the Lafontaine coalition would end up winning 28 of the 42 assembly seats. In Upper Canada, though, the situation was reversed. Baldwin and his supporters found themselves castigated as disloyal ultras, and Draper's supporters took a majority of seats in the Upper Colony. Yet again, the Canadas would be divided, French Canada largely voting one way and English Canada another. But Metcalfe could be happy at least. When all of the polls finally closed, he wrote to London saying that he expected his supporters to carry a majority of 46 to 39 in the new assembly. It was a victory of a kind, but a decidedly close and divisive one. In London, the Queen and Prime Minister were pleased, and within a month, Charles Metcalfe became Baron Metcalfe. So it paid to be a governor when loyalists won office in the Canadas. In this age before strong party discipline, a slim majority was often not a majority. And this is exactly what Draper's government realized when the assembly reconvened after the election. It didn't help that Draper himself was in the legislative council, not the assembly. So when Lafontaine and Baldwin and their supporters went on the attack, the government's chief spokesperson wasn't even there to take the lead. Of course, Vijay wasn't there either because he had been defeated twice. He had to wait for months before trying again to find a seat. Dennis Benjamin Papineau was there, but he was growing deaf. And then there was the resilient but almost non-partisan Dominic Daly, who had, in his austere adherence to duty, never actually spoken in the assembly in his life. So, not a good start. But start Lafontaine and Baldwin did. The supporters of the government put forward as their candidate for speaker, Alan McNabb, the man who was for many in Upper Canada a hero of 1837, who had come to the rescue of Toronto. But McNabb was also, for some of the same reasons, a Tory who was reviled by many in Lower Canada. McNabb did win the election for speaker, but only by two votes. And two French Canadians had voted with the government, and for doing so, Lafontaine and other Lower Canadian reformers smeared them as traitors to their people. So yes, it was going to be a rather unpleasant session. The reform approach to being in opposition was to try to embarrass the government as often as possible. And Lafontaine thought that the best way to do this was to focus on the symbolic issue of the status of the French language. Even though in practice Lafontaine and others spoke in French in the assembly, officially the province still held English as the only official language for public business. And so Lafontaine set out to embarrass the ministry into voting against the interests of the French and the French language in particular. A few years earlier, you might remember, Lafontaine had been insulted when making his first speech in French when a Tory shouted out that he should speak English. Now the insult had been noted, of course. Now, however, all of the reform papers kept retelling the story, ensuring that the insult was in everyone's mind. Lafontaine pushed in the assembly to overturn the language ban, pressing the ministry and its French supporters to embarrass themselves by not supporting his measure. Now, the ministers themselves were too quick to be caught on this particular measure, but some Tory members of the assembly just couldn't help themselves. They voted to refuse a petition which had come in French. 
Vijay and Papineau found the ban themselves repugnant and wanted it ended. But the question for them was, how was it to be achieved and who would get the credit? The ministers wanted to ensure that they, and not Lafontaine's reformers, were seen to win such victories. On this issue, they outmaneuvered Lafontaine and replaced his measure to end the French ban by one of their own, preparing an address to the Queen asking her to remove the ban. The Assembly then passed this address with, of course, wide support. The ministers also tried to show that French Canadians could receive a voice in government through this system, through Vigée and Papineau, and not just the Lafontaine-led Reform Alliance. Although Metcalf failed to convince London of the wisdom of a general amnesty for all the 1837-38 rebels who had been exiled, he had moved forward to issue a large number of individual reprieves, and beginning in January 1845, only shortly after the election, the exiles began to return to Lower Canada. Lower Canadians welcomed back the exiles like long-lost relatives to great fanfare, and Vijay and Papineau tried to soak up the credit for the government side. As the months of 1845 passed on, newspapers across Lower Canada began to talk seriously about this concept of the double majority. This idea that perhaps in this dual province of the Canadas, no measure should be passed that affected one section without the full support of the representatives of the people from that section. Could a kind of responsible government work that wasn't built along the Lafontaine-Baldwin model? but which instead asserted the collective rights of French Lower Canadians to be consulted and included on their own terms. Although there was a strident debate at first, by the end of the year, just about all of the papers conceded that the double majority made sense. It wouldn't be fair to pass laws about Lower Canada without a guarantee that Lower Canada's representatives agreed. Even the reformist Lafontaine papers agreed that the double majority should be made to work. It shows the great irony of how the Union scheme had turned out by 1845. This idea of uniting the Canadas into a single colony with the hope of assimilating the French, of robbing them of the power that the Patriot had wielded in the old Lower Canadian system, this scheme that was supposed to make Canada English had instead created a dual province that was quickly, in tradition if not always yet in law, working along the lines of a French-English duality. Every major post in the government was doubled. There were two attorneys general, one for Lower Canada and one for Upper Canada, and the same went for two solicitors general. Despite the grumblings of some Tories, the French language ban was not enforceable. The plan to transform Lower Canada by imposing a new English and Protestant education system wasn't working either, and legislation in this session of the Assembly would make it even less likely. Like the idea of responsible government, duality and the double majority was sometimes hard to define, but it came to be obvious to all of the major players that it should exist. The only question was how it would work in practice. Lafontaine and Baldwin were skeptical. Now, obviously they had personal reasons to doubt double majority. Their own plan was for a responsible government that gave power to the single largest party and they wanted this to be the United Reform Party. Under the double majority scheme, 
the representatives of French Canada would agree to join a government of whichever party held power in Upper Canada. It might be reformers, but it could just as easily be the Tories. Baldwin certainly had a lot to lose under this plan, but Lafontaine was also decidedly unconvinced. Although in public he had to concede to the merits of the double majority, such was the, you know, the growing popularity of the idea. But Lafontaine also questioned how it could work and how it could all also go wrong. The whole scheme, he thought, depended on having a liberal governor who would listen to the advice from the other side. But what would stop a governor from not listening to the voice of Lower Canada? Didn't this all depend on the personality of an appointed official? And as capital a fellow as Metcalfe seemed to be, or at least as so many claimed he was, what would stop a less capital fellow making different decisions? Better to stick with a responsible government which ensured that the governor needed to follow the advice of whichever party held sway in the assembly. Of course, Vijay and Papineau could make a case in the opposite direction. They pointed out that the population of English speakers was growing year by year. New immigrants came up the St. Lawrence on ships to debark for new homesteads in Upper Canada and the eastern townships. The Lower Canadians might have been in the majority in 1841, but would that majority last? And what would happen to the French Canadians in a Canada that had a large English majority? Wouldn't a responsible government not simply make it possible for an English majority to assert its will over the whole of Canada? There was, in other words, a lot at stake in these debates about the double majority and responsible government in 1845, and there were compelling cases on either side. Not that the two sides could concede as much, of course. In fact, bitter partisan rivalry grew to exceptional levels. It's a cliché today for someone to go to Parliament and listen to question period and come away complaining about how badly behaved the MPs are. Why don't they all just get along? And to think that children go there on school trips, what are we teaching our children? Now, these seem like reasonable complaints, but I'd hate to think what these people would say about a parliamentary session in 1845. For in 1845, we were talking merely about bad manners and heckling. On several occasions, fights broke out in the assembly. Assemblymen issued challenges to defend their honor, and then the usual rigmarole of fighting a duel would take place. In February 1845, the English-speaking reformer Thomas Aylwin from Quebec was often at the center of the fight. The short, pugnacious Aylwin was, more often than not, heavily into his drink, and his blunt and humorous assaults on the government stung. On one occasion, his attack on Papineau led to a parliamentary equivalent of the bench-clearing brawl. The assembly members rushed the other side, shoving and pushing. Even the visitors in the gallery began to throw items into the melee. On another occasion, even the mild Dominic Daly got into it. He couldn't help himself, and in the midst of a speech by Eowyn, he burst out with, Sir, that is false. Eowyn shouted back, What did you say? And Daly repeated himself, I say that it is false. Now, you just couldn't say this kind of thing in 1845. It was an attack on a man's honor. So the challenge was issued and the duel was fought. Or at least it might have been. Different sources report different events here. One claims that the men fired their weapons and no one was hurt. Another historian claims that the two men gathered at dawn to fight the duel. Their seconds began to make the arrangements, pacing out the distance. And then Daly and his opponent burst into laughter at just how ludicrous the whole thing was. And so they went on their way. Francis Hinks wasn't so lucky. 
As the editor of the newspaper The Pilot in Montreal, Hinks was in the thick of political intrigue and gossip. The paper published a letter claiming that a man who worked for Dominic Daly, named Patrick McKeon, had been a Tory spy and that when he had previously worked for a reform lawyer, he had done so only to snoop on his opponents. McKeon was furious and, wanting to clear his name, issued a challenge to Hinks to fight a duel. Hinks thought this whole dueling business was nonsense and an aristocratic holdover and so he refused. But McKeon wasn't to be so easily avoided. One evening, when Hinks left his office, McKeon came at him with a club and steadily beat him to the ground. McKeon, of course, was charged and fined, but went away certain of the rightness of his actions. After all, Hinks had defamed him and had refused to give him satisfaction, that is, to fight a duel. None of this made politics an easy endeavor in 1845. Neither did the government's very slim majority. All through the session, it was unclear from one issue to the next which measures would pass. And the government hung on to power and to credibility from moment to moment. It has to be said that even reformers were themselves divided and Robert Baldwin found himself at odds with his own allies. In the mid-1840s, the country was debating issues that were meant to switch the culture out of older traditions and into the age of laissez-faire liberalism. So the members debated ending the practice of primogeniture, the tradition of ensuring that the eldest male heir would inherit the lion's share of an estate. And Baldwin, very liberal on matters of responsible government, just didn't see the value in ending this older social tradition. And so it was on other matters, on matters of free trade, on the rights of limited liability companies. The lines between reformers and Tories blurred. Draper had decided that he really did need to have a seat in the assembly, and so he ran and won in a by-election. This was, if nothing else, a sign that responsible government was gaining ground in practice. To lead in politics, you really did need to have a seat in the assembly amongst the elected members. And so Draper found himself a seat. But Draper also kept seeking out a more workable majority. If the idea of the double majority was gaining ground, surely he needed to find members of this government who could speak for and carry the votes of a majority of French members. Vigée and Papineau gave the government credibility, but in the end, only their own votes. And so, in the autumn of 1845, Draper hatched a plot to transform government in the Canadas. The key to it all was René-Édouard Caron. The genial-looking Caron with his mutton chops and the small smile that made him look like a continuously tolerant grandfather was hard to dislike. Caron was a Lafontaine-like reformer through and through. The Quebec City lawyer had been around government since the early 1830s, and he'd steered a path close to the heart of reform interests throughout signing the 92 resolutions, but then veering away from Papineau's radicalism in the rebellion, agreeing to serve on Lower Canada's Executive Council in 1837 to try to reconcile differences, but then, in the aftermath of rebellion, steadfastly protesting the forced union of the Canadas. He was a reformer but a moderate, and quickly made himself amenable to working within the new political institutions of the Canadas. In 1843, Governor Metcalf had appointed him to the Legislative Council. That body, 
like our Senate, that had used to bother the Patriots so much before the rebellions, but which now admits the campaign for responsible government had mostly receded from controversy. Lafontaine and Baldwin didn't like that Metcalf had appointed Caro on his own, but on the other hand, Caro was one of their allies and everyone liked him, so how could you complain? Now, late in the spring of 1845, and with Draper and Metcalf searching for a way to bring French Canadians into their government, they turned to Caron. Draper began a correspondence with Caron, pleading that Caron and other French Canadians were needed in the assembly and in the government. Draper offered that Caron could himself enter the government as a minister, and others could too. But Draper did have one key stipulation. Lafontaine himself would not be accepted. Caron seems to have taken the whole thing rather seriously. The correspondence went back and forth over the summer. Events moved more slowly in this political world, of course, before social media. And in September, Caron decided to write to Lafontaine himself to ask his thoughts on what he should do. Caron wrote that although the offer might not be enough for the moment, it might be the beginning of something better. Lafontaine was having none of it. His response to Caron was scalding. What is proposed to us, Lafontaine wrote, is a repudiation of responsibility. If the government took seriously the principle of the double majority, then why not come to them and offer to bring in the whole group which had the confidence of the majority of lower Canadians? In other words, why not come to Lafontaine himself? The trick for Lafontaine was that, in effect, the government was trying to bring in French Canadians, but they didn't want him. So how was Lafontaine going to walk his way through this maze? In effect, he professed his own lack of ambition. Of course, all he wanted was a voice for his people. But then he came back to principles, to the need to bring in those who truly had the voice of the people, i.e. Lafontaine and his group. They needed to stick together, to not let themselves be picked apart. As is so often the case in politics, it was an argument rooted both in self-interest and principle. What was good for Lafontaine was good for his people, and it's tricky to pull the strands apart. As it was, Caron opted for caution. He declined Draper's advances. But the whole incident revealed the divisions within the Lafontaine-Baldwin party. Lafontaine worried that there were those in his party who doubted his leadership, factions within the party that would be happy to oust him from leadership. The unity of the French Canadian bloc was its greatest strength, but it could sometimes seem natural and everlasting when, in reality, there were always tensions and egos and alternate possibilities lurking close to the surface. The next scare for Lafontaine came in September of 1845, with the return of the one man who truly might be able to supplant him, Louis-Joseph Papineau. The great orator and patriot leader had been in exile in France. Papineau's wife had returned two years earlier and through her and other friends, Papineau had received his own amnesty the year before. Even so, Papineau lingered in France, working in the National Library there and, and the archives and writing on the French period of New France. With his wife's insistence, he finally came back to Canada in the autumn of 1845, and everyone wondered, Lafontaine most of all, would Papineau come back to politics? His brother, Denis Benjamin Papineau, certainly hoped he would. It was a lonely business sitting on the executive, and Denny Benjamin could certainly use an ally, especially one so popular as his long-exiled brother. 
Papineau met with his brother and others. He met with Lafontaine, with whom he had been on good terms previously. And then, to the consternation of his brother and the great delight of Lafontaine, Papineau opted to retreat to his seigneury, to his estate, and to enter a kind of semi-retirement, at least for now. Papineau wasn't the only one edging towards retirement. The governor, Charles Metcalfe, for quite different reasons, was realizing in the autumn of 1845 that he simply could not continue. For more than a year, Metcalfe's health had been steadily deteriorating. The British Prime Minister Peel had even sent over a special doctor to treat him, but nothing would work, and the attempted fixes, like operations with zinc chloride to burn out the cancer, only made things worse. Medcalf's steadfast refusal to leave, his sense that he needed to stay on and see out his duty, keep the government alive, this had earned him a great deal of admiration. But by October of 1845, it was just too much. He rode to London to resign and sailed for home the next month, in November. He would make it home, but only just. He died in September of 1846. Coming to Canada as a Governor General in the rebellion years yet again appeared not to be good for your health. The choice of Metcalfe's successor was an easy one for London because they had just sent someone to the candidates who would, at this particular time, be the perfect candidate for the job, or at least part of the job. Charles Murray Cathcart. Cathcart was a Scottish Earl with a distinguished record of military service stretching all through the Napoleonic campaigns up to and including Waterloo. He had partially retired and was spending his time in Edinburgh as a man of leisure, reading, studying, and, amongst other things, discovering a new mineral, you know, as you do. And so, he was decidedly available when the British government went looking for someone to lead the military in British North America in 1845, and the Brits absolutely wanted someone with a strong military pedigree in 1845. This had nothing to do with Baldwin, Lafontaine, and responsible government, and everything to do with the United States and the idea of manifest destiny. You know, that fuzzy, warm sentiment that it was only a matter of time until the United States expanded to take control of all of North America. In the 1840s, the American conflict with Britain and British North America lay in the far western region called the Oregon Territory. The boundary between the United States and British claims in America had actually been settled along the lines of the 49th parallel in a relatively recent treaty, but it only included territory up to the Rocky Mountains. And in the mid-1840s, American settlers were streaming into the Oregon region west of the Rockies, a territory claimed both by the United States and Britain. Up until this point, this had been primarily a fur trade zone. Rival trading companies, the Hudson's Bay Company for the British and John Jacob Astor's Pacific Fur Company for the Americans, had established trading posts and relations with indigenous peoples along the rivers throughout the region. The British and the Hudson's Bay Company wanted to protect access to the Columbia River, the most navigable waterway from the interior out to the sea. The Columbia drains out to the sea just past what is now present-day Portland, Oregon and the Hudson's Bay Company wanted to keep this territory. The Americans demanded a much more northern boundary at the longitudinal and latitudinal coordinates of 5440, right up against the southernmost Russian claims in America, 
They wanted, in other words, to squeeze out the British and to bolster their claims to the far west. No one, it should be said, aside from the fur traders on the ground, seriously considered that indigenous peoples wouldn't be willing to concede their own sovereignty over these lands. The Americans seemed particularly belligerent. They weren't merely disagreeing with the British, they also threatened Mexico on their south and western borders. Back in 1836, Texas had declared its independence from Mexico, and while the United States had held off asserting any sovereignty over that region, this coyness only lasted until 1844. In that year, a boisterous new American president, James Polk, helped to pass a resolution through Congress and Senate incorporating Texas into the United States. But he wasn't content with that massive acquisition. He had campaigned on a pledge of 54-40 or fight, that is, settling the Oregon dispute in America's favor or going to war with the British. It wasn't clear just how serious he was, but the British assumed that they had best be prepared. And so, Cathcart arrived in British North America to show some steadfast British readiness. Then, when Metcalfe was forced to resign, London announced that Cathcart would, at least temporarily, take on the whole job of Governor General in British North America. And here we were, and the Canada's back again with a military governor. For some, this was a kind of embarrassment. After all, the talk of responsible government of over the 1840s weren't the Canadians beyond the need of a general traipsing around the colony and governing them at the same time. In fact, though, they needn't have worried. Cathcart had very little interest in politics. Whether through wise discretion or simple disinterest, he essentially let Draper head up the civilian government. Cathcart himself tried to ready the colony for a possible war. He traveled the border mile after mile to inspect defenses. He studied the naval readiness for possible altercations on the Great Lakes. Four new stout Martello towers were built at the fort at Kingston to defend the entrance to the Rideau Canal. Cathcart's major legislative interest was the colony's first militia bill passed in 1846. The lower Canadian militia in particular had been dormant since the rebellions and the idea of arming French Canadians alarmed some Tories. In Parliament, a supporter of Lafontaine, Etienne Pascal Taché, took up the fight in what can sometimes seem to be some rather contradictory language, but an argument which made perfect sense at the time. Taché argued that his people were solidly conservative and monarchist. They were honourable and they would fight to defend their homeland and, of course, simultaneously the British Empire. Indeed, he said, the last cannon which is shot on this continent in defense of Great Britain will be fired by the hand of a French Canadian. Although Taché was officially in the opposition, Draper took him at his word, and Taché was made commander of the Canada East portion of the militia. All through the winter of 1845 and 1846, the threat of war hung in the air, but that certainly didn't stop the regular politicking. The great dilemma of politics in 1840s Canada remained how to form a government which had the support of the people, and both the French and English in particular. Lafontaine and Baldwin were out of power and still championing their own version of responsible government, which meant party government, and ideally government by a united reform party. But Draper and the Loyalists clung to a slender majority, 
and with the idea of a double majority in their back pockets, they kept trying to bring in a group of French Canadians who could represent their people. If Vigée and Papineau couldn't quite do it, maybe someone else would. This had been the idea of trying to bring in Caron. But in April of 1846, Lafontaine decided to play some dirty politics. Rumors were stirring about what Draper had done the year before, the negotiations he had held with Caron. Lafontaine, of course, knew about this because Caron had told them. In April of 1846, Lafontaine tried a different tactic. He rose in the assembly and spoke openly about these nefarious negotiations. He said that he had seen portions of the correspondence, and then he said that it really would be necessary, surely it was a public good, if he laid this correspondence out in the assembly for all to see. Now, this was, for many at the time, a shameful thing, a breach of privacy, of trust, laying out in public a private correspondence. But it also must have seemed to Lafontaine a smart thing to do, a way of warning others in his party not to go near Draper, that they would face the same public shaming if they did it. Days of debate followed, generating a heck of a amount of heat, but very little light. Vijay and Papineau had had just about enough. They wanted to resign and retire by this point. Their support of the ministry hadn't brought them support from their compatriots, only shame and resentment. And so Draper thought, well, why not try again? Once again, he started up his correspondence with Caron. It was already out in the open, he must have thought. Perhaps it'll work this time. And Caron took him seriously. Draper met with other prominent lower Canadian leaders all through the summer and autumn, but to little avail. Lafontaine's hold on power remained. The idea that the best way to achieve power was with a responsible government, a party government, held sway. In June of 1846, the Brits and the Americans patched things up and signed the Oregon Treaty, settling the boundary midway between the competing claims, extending the border along the 49th parallel to the sea. Now, once at the sea, there was still a dispute to be had, but we'll get to that next season when we talk about British Columbia. For now, we just need to note that in the summer of 1846, the Americans had other things on their mind. President Polk had taken them into war, not with the British, but with the Mexicans. And so for the next couple of years, the Americans will be fixated on their southern and western borders, eventually capturing Mexico City and by the end of the war, taking over 55% of pre-war Mexican territory, including present-day California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and parts of New Mexico and Colorado. Because, you know, manifest destiny. With the end of the Oregon dispute, the old soldier Cathcart had done his duty and the British government could turn to a different governor. Cathcart would stick around for a few months to await the arrival of his successor, but he would be going home. A new governor, and a pivotal one, Lord Elgin would arrive in the new year, but we'll get to him in a later episode. For now, let's just say that by the end of 1846, the Canadas were somewhat settled and yet not settled at all. The idea of responsible government had gained currency, and in fact, given that Cathcart had essentially left the governing to Draper, the Canadas sort of had a responsible government. Except the concept had not really been accepted by the British government, not yet and it essentially only worked so far as a party that was deemed sufficiently loyal held power in the assembly. The real question remained, what would happen when a group like Lafontaine's and Baldwin's reformers took power in the assembly? Would we have the same disputes over patronage as before? Would the governor still insist on independence of action? 
and would the ministers insist on controlling all domestic policy? Okay, up until now, we've been focused on central Canada, and to all of the Maritimers out there, I apologize, but fret not. For the answer to these questions about responsible government were going to be settled in the first instance, not in the Canadas, but in the Maritimes, in Nova Scotia in particular. Next week, we head east to meet a man named Joseph Howe. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. I hope you're enjoying this audio history of the Canadas in the 1830s and 1840s. If you do like what you're hearing, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Drop me a line via the website www.1867allthat.com. I'd love to hear from you. As promised, next week we head east and meet a very particular character, a wild reformer who was simultaneously a proud British loyalist. And we learn that it was in Nova Scotia and not the Canadas, as many books still insist on saying, that the idea of responsible government truly came to fruition. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and produced by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, with the generous financial support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of All That to 1867 and All That. <laughs>